and a very happy Mother's Day. If you're a mom in the house, can you wave at me this morning? And can we give it up for all the moms here? So grateful for the moms. I'm a product of a godly mother. I'm married to a godly mother. So for 42 years, these two women have been keeping me in line. It's a good thing to have a godly mom uh, in your life. Before we open the scriptures this morning, I want to recognize some moms. We, uh, we love giving away flowers on Mother's Day. And so I want to give away this morning some flowers uh, to the newest mom. So to the mom in the house that has the newest baby. Do we have anybody here, any babies that are under a month old? Raise your hand. Any babies under a month? Okay, two months. So stretch it out just a little bit more. A dedication. Anybody? That's, uh, uh? Oh, that's right. Okay. How many days old? I know you're still keeping track of the days. Where, where are we at here? The same day. Well, well, we could split the bouquet in two. There's some like biblical precedent, but that's kind of weird to invoke on Mother's Day. Weird biblical joke. Okay. Well, I'm just going to take that one back. Anyway. I say we take the tie. Let's do a bouquet for each. Can we do that? Yes. Give it up for the moms here. Okay. That's wonderful. And then I also want to do one uh, for the mom in the house with uh, the most children. So if you have three or more, raise your hand. We'll just kind of go process of elimination. Okay. Four or more. Put you, okay. Five or more. Karina. Anybody else? Oh, okay. Five, six. Wait. Okay, six. Three-way ties are for five? Then what are we going to do? Give it, yeah, you're going to have to split them up is what we're going to do. Give it up for the moms with five kids. You graduate out of a minivan at that point and you buy a school bus. So that's really, really huge. Okay. Um, we're going to open the scriptures this morning. I uh, was thinking, you know, we've been in the middle of this series on First John that has been so fun. I have loved every second of this series, kind of sitting in John's thoughts and thinking about what that might mean for our life with God. And then, of course, Mother's Day. And I was like, I kind of want to do a Mother's Day message, but I want to stay with John. But I want to do a Mother's Day message, but I really want to stay with John. And then I had an idea. And I think it's a good idea. Not all of the ideas are good ideas, but this one I think is solid. I thought, what if we stay with First John but we let John talk to us about God's will for families. That's like a good idea. And we cannot talk about families enough, right? So uh, we're in the book of First John. I'm going to start in chapter 3 here and read the first three verses. And then we'll be off to the races here. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. First John chapter 3 and verse 1. John says, and I'm just going to stop even before I start here. The old translations of the Bible used to say, this is the NIV, and I like the NIV, but this is just a little too sterile for me. See what great love is like nice. But the old translation said, behold what manner of love. They even made a song for it. Do you remember the song? Were you there? Behold what manner of love the Father has unto us. You'll get it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the sons and daughters of God. That we should be called the sons. I love that song. I grew up singing that song. Behold 
John says, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that, he says, is precisely what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves even as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. We thank you that the words of the psalmist are true of us as well. Psalm 139. All the days ordained for us were written in your book before one of them came to be. We were fashioned in the wombs of our mother's according to the wisdom and the power and the providence of our God. And we're grateful for that. We thank you that on this day as we celebrate moms, we thank you that not just fatherhood, but even motherhood comes from you. The prophet Isaiah spoke for you, God, when he said that can a mother forget the baby at her breast or have no compassion on the child that she is born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. You're the God who carves us into your own body. You're the God who takes responsibility for us. You're the God who loved us before we were anything at all. You loved us before we even knew you, how good you are to us. This morning, we ask that as we open the scriptures, that they would speak to us, that they would help us, that they would remind us of what it means to be your people inside our families and to indeed be the family of God. Granted, we pray, we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. I want to give you three things I think John would say to us about God's will for families. And so I'm going to talk to moms and dads, and then I'm going to talk to all of us inside of our families, and then I'm going to talk to the whole family of God together. So the sermon will move like that, first to the moms and dads, then to the whole family, and then the whole family of God. First thing that I would say to you this morning is that I think that John would say to us that our homes are to be places where the life of God is manifest as righteous love. Everybody say righteous love. And I'm putting those two things together on purpose because I think that that is what our God shows us about who he is, that he is both righteousness and love, that he is holy love, all At once, listen to John here, John chapter 17. John is recording the last prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the so-called high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer. This is John 17, 11. But they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Then watch what he calls God. He says, Holy Father. Everybody say, Holy Father. Holy Father. That's important. It's deliberate. Protect them by the power of your name. The name that you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. Look down at verse 25. Jesus says, righteous father. Everybody say righteous father. Righteous father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. And I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me might be in them and that I myself might be in the holy father and righteous father. Jesus in his vision of who God is brings holiness and love, righteousness and love together. 
And this is really critical because elsewhere what he says in the verses that we just read, 1 John chapter 3, John says that as we draw near to this God, behold what manner, remember, of love that the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. What is the destiny of all children? It is in some way, shape, or form to become like their parents, right? And we know this on a biological level. We all have our parents' DNA in us. And one of the most horrifying things that happens to you in adulthood is you start hearing your dad's voice through your own voice. And then if the process goes well, at some point you become reconciled to that and you realize that your parents give you some, gave you some gifts that are good for you. But our parents live on inside of us. And that is true of the new birth as well. That God plants righteous DNA, the DNA of divinity inside of us, so that as we grow up, we become like him, which is exactly what John says. He says that the world doesn't know what we are, but we know that when he appears, Christ Jesus, we're going to be, do you remember? Like him, for we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in themselves purify themselves just like that one is pure. There's something about being close to God that makes us as God is. And I think that the first task of our parenting, so I'm talking not just to the moms, but I'm talking to the dads this morning. I think the first and the most central task of our parenting is to dwell as close as we can to the righteous father, the holy father in heaven, so that we become like him, a living image of our father in heaven for our children. And I'm standing before you this morning in large part because I have two parents that modeled this for me. So I think about my mom growing up. My mom is the second oldest daughter of a couple farmers in central Wisconsin. And she approached her spirituality all of the years I was growing up in that house. She approached her spirituality just like a farmer would approach a farmer's work. She was up early, early in the morning before the Lord, pouring over the scriptures, presenting her heart and her soul to God, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and being transformed by that. Or I think about my dad. My dad would get up not much later than her, 5, 5.30 in the morning. And I'd come downstairs at 6, 6.30, and I'd see my mom sitting at the island with her Bible that she'd had for years and years and years that was falling to pieces because of the time that she spent in it. And she's pouring over the scriptures and encountering the Lord. And my dad is sitting over here at the kitchen table, and he had an old King James version of the Bible, the Dake version of the Bible. Some of you Older folks in this house, maybe you read the Dake version. It's got these notes, everything in it. And my dad and my mom together sitting in the presence of God. And I'll tell you what my parents, and they were not perfect and they would lay claim to perfection, but they modeled something of God for me. They modeled, first of all, that there was just no toleration for anything less than like, this is the way, walk in it. And I remember some of those times when I was a kid that I would, and my mom was just so tender and loving and wonderful, good lady. But there were times that I would cross my mom and flames of fire would leap up in her eyes, you know. And she would look at me, all of a sudden her finger would go out like this. And she would look at me and she would say, Andrew Burden aren't. That's my middle name, by the way. And whatever came after that was mortally crucial. Just not going to let me get away with anything. Or my dad, my dad could spot an attitude a mile away. And he might be laying down on the couch and, you know, and he's asked me something. Or he sees some little attitude in me. And all of a sudden it was just like, like ugly on an ape, chicken on a June bug, you know, just right on top of it. They just didn't let anything slide. And yet there was all of this affection and love. And like I know to this day, parents are probably watching this message this morning, to this day, 
I know that there is nothing that my parents would not do for me. Deep affection, deep commitment, righteousness, and love put together. And our homes are to be places where the righteous love of God is made manifest. And that, by the way, is what the life of God looks like. It looks like righteous love. And it strikes me that in our time, we have a real difficult time putting these things together. I think about some of the old modes of parenting way back when. To me, it seems to me, this is just a 42-year-old man reflecting on what he's seen from the past. It seems to me that, we, uh, we, uh, that righteousness was maybe the larger value. There is a right way to be. There's a right way to live. And there are rules of society. And you've got to follow them and all of that. And affection was like real low. Because, hey, I put a roof over your head and I'm giving you food. And isn't that enough? You know I love you, right? There's lots of righteousness. And then what I see is that the pendulum swings because the pendulum is always swinging. And the pendulum now, I think, in our time has swung so far away from that that now the new mode of parenting is it's all just like I have to be the kid's best friend and you have to like me and let's just have fun and all of that. And I don't really want to hold you accountable because it gets at some point, you know, life is really brutal and difficult and there will be hard things at some point. So everything is just going to be lollipops and kittens and, you know, the merry-go-round and all of that. So, so we never put any boundaries or borders. We exercise no discipline in our homes. The new thing is free-range parenting. That's what I call it anyway. And I think we think we're doing our kids a favor, and it seems to me that we're actually raising up a whole generation of anarchists. So that's Andrew's opinion on that. Take that or leave that. It's not either or. You actually can put both of those things together. We know this because God has put those things together for us. That our God is the one who embodies this deep affection for us, but he also is the righteous Lord of all the earth who disciplines his children so that his children will learn righteousness. And it seems to me that as we draw near to our God, we become more like he is. Think about Paul's words, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, And we all with unveiled faces reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Our call is to look at our Father in heaven, embodied in Jesus, in the face, and become as he is. That makes all the difference in our home. So when you think about, I'm just going to give you a couple little tidbits here. When I think about the things that the Lord requires of us as parents, I just put it to you in three different statements here. Number one, I'd say that our first obligation as parents, your first obligation as a parent, is to live close to God. Do you know that what your children need from you more than anything else is that you would be full of the love and the life of God? Your kids don't need your vast wisdom. They need you to be disciples of Jesus. And your kids don't need to be you to be their 24-7 activity leaders. They need you to be disciples of Jesus Christ. They need you to be formed by the Spirit for the kingdom of God. Think about what Paul says in Galatians 5 on the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, church, I know you know it. And then, and then, and then, and then. Self-control. Can you imagine if you had a mom and a dad that embodied those qualities? Some of you are fortunate enough to, you do have that. Now, can you imagine the blessing that you will be to your children if you just embody love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self? You'll create an atmosphere in your home that is so wholesome 
that it will be very difficult for your children not to grow up in righteousness. Live close to God. You say, but it's so difficult. Andrew, it's so demanding. There's so much stuff going on. I know that. We've got four kids of our own. Three of them are teenagers. We are at that point in our parenting where it feels like the schedule is so full. We cannot tolerate one more thing. You know, our kids come to us. Can we? And the answer is no at this point. You cannot do any more things. It's so full. And it would be so easy to be like, I just, I'm too full to pray. I'm too full to devote time to God. I'm too full to steal away for a little bit, to renew my spirit in the presence of God. And if you're tempted with that thought, I want to say to you that your schedule is too full for you not to do those things. The stakes are too high. Live close to God so that you can convey God's presence, his wholesomeness, his fatherhood to your kids. Number one. Number two, I'd say... The second big requirement for us as parents is for us to learn to righteously regulate our households. It is not evil for you to have boundaries around your children's activities. I need an amen from somebody. Somebody, I think, is teaching parents that to be a person that regulates stuff is evil and that you just need to kind of let the kids do whatever. I just think that that is so wrong-headed. The only way that your children will learn the moral action or the moral value of their actions is because you taught them. So when they do things that are right, praise them or reward them, okay? And when they do things that are wrong, punish them for all of our sakes. <laughs> that sounds so mean, you know what the writer of Proverbs says? The writer of Proverbs says that the one who spares the rod, I'm not advocating for any specific form of correction, but the rod is a symbol of correction, okay? The one who spares the rod, spares punishing their children, hates their children. It seems loving, but it's not loving. And what you're doing when you reward things that are good and you punish things that are wrong is you're helping them understand that our universe is actually set up in that way. That our universe is as hard as nails. God has created a moral order to the universe so that when you do what's righteous, there is benefit that comes to you because of that. And when you do what's wicked, you bring down judgment upon... Where are your kids going to learn that if they don't learn that from you? And so we live close to God and we righteously regulate our homes. Number three, we embody the Father's affection in all things. We both say this is right and this is wrong and as often as we can possibly do it, we pull our kids close and we kiss them on the cheek and we grab them by the sides of their face and we look them in the eyeballs and we say like the father said to his son from heaven, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. And it doesn't matter how many good things you do because you are not going to earn my love. And it doesn't matter how many bad things that you can do because you will never be able to get out of my love. I love you because you are. And that kind of committed, unconditional love, I'm telling you, it softens things up in us. It opens us up to righteousness. So live close to God and righteously regulate. And then show the Father's affection to your kids and all things. So we're called to embody the life of God in righteous love. Number two, I'd say, what's our, what would John say to us about our homes? 
I think that John would say there are homes, there are places where we model and practice humility. Everybody say humility. And repentance. Everybody say repentance. And forgiveness. Everybody say forgiveness. If we claim, John says, to be without sin, think about this in your families. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I'm going to tell you something. One of the things that I love about the scriptures is the scriptures portray for us a kind of identity as the people of God that's complex enough to hold the vast realities of our existence. So I'll explain what I think about that. So think about how often in the scriptures, the scriptures will talk about us in the, in the most positive, glowing terms possible. Like it'll call us children of God, like we just read, right? First John chapter 3. Or it'll call us saints of the Most High. Like it gives us this dignity. We are those who have been raised with Christ Jesus, seated in the heavenly realms with him, right? Positive, 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 positive. And yet the scripture knows something about us. It knows that so long as we are on this side of eternity, there still are things in us that are dark and sinister and they need to be pushed out of it. So it doesn't hesitate to call us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and call us sinners at the same time. I got a question for you this morning, church. Do you know that you're a sinner? Some of you all offended about that. Pastor, I am not. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, you are. And you're a sinner. And you're both of those things at the same time. And until you come to grips with that, you're not going to lead a truthful existence. Do you know you're a sinner, church? Do you know that? Now, next question. We're going to do some work here this morning. Do you know what sinners do? Oh, man, you guys are good. So you know you're sinners. You know what sinners do. Sinners sin. Okay. Do you know... What sinners are supposed to do when they sin? Okay, we got some stuff going on in here. This is good. Now, sinners who are sinned against by other sinners, when they are extended the grace of repentance, what are those sinners supposed to do to those sinners who have sinned against them? Oh, guys, we have started a revolution this morning could cure literally, literally all the problems of society. And I'm not even kidding about that, actually. When I think about the nearly 20 years I've spent in pastoral ministry, you know, I think about the great relational dysfunctions that I have seen. Almost all of them are because somewhere along the line, somebody got this whole thing wrong. And I, I know that it's very difficult. We struggle with it. We all struggle with it. I think about our kids. Like Mandy and I have the four kids. Good Lord. Like this has been like maybe one of like the, maybe the most central parenting struggle is like trying to help our kids understand that when you mess things up, there is a process whereby you can put things back together and you have to do it in just this way. So I think about, now I have permission for my kids to share this story, but I think about several years ago, uh, Ethan is our oldest and we have Gabe, then Bella, our daughter, and Liam. So three boys and a girl. And the kids are all playing downstairs and all of a sudden we kind of, Mandy and I were sitting on the couch watching TV and we heard this little squabble kind of happening in the basement and all of a sudden, Bella, our daughter, you know, she marches upstairs and then she runs to her room and bang, the door slams. Like, oh gosh, something happens, you know. So I pause the movie or whatever and I get up off the couch and I go into the basement and Ethan, our oldest, is standing there kind of looking sheepishly. 
And I said, Eve, what happened? And he kind of told me the story. I said, oh, man, you kind of really stepped in it with your sister, didn't you? He's like, yeah. I was like, you know what you got to do? He's like, yeah. I was like, so here's the game plan. You're going to go up to your sister and you're going to take these words with you. You're going to say, Bella, I'm really sorry for the thing that I did. Let me know what I can do to make it right. Would you please forgive me? And you just take those words to your sister. And I think we're going we're gonna to do it. Put it all back together again. And so Ethan goes marching upstairs and Mandy and I can hear there's a little conversation happening up there. And we're really holding out hope that there's going to be a great reconciliation. And shortly thereafter, Ethan comes back downstairs, appears in the living room. We go, Ethan, how did it go? And he goes, well, I said what you told me to say. And we said, well, how'd she take it? And he said, well, she looked at me and said, nobody likes you. still got work to do. But we've grown a lot as a family since then. But you know, it is hard because it's not just the humility that Ethan has to show, the offending party, but there's a humility that the person who was wronged has to show to put that relationship back together again. And so long as there is a disruption there, the life of God cannot flow between those people. So we have to get things right. What are we going to do when we mess things up? Church, I'm going to give you a short little believer's catechism here at putting relationships back together when they have fallen apart, okay? So here's the first thing that you're going to do if you've stepped in it, okay? And this doesn't, if not moms, dads, brothers, sisters, everybody. This is everybody in the family, okay? Number one, this is what you're going to do. You're going to say these words. Where does, there we go. Say it real loud, church. Now, some of you have never said those words in your life. And that's okay. That's why we're doing the work here. I need you to turn to your neighbor Look him dead in the eye. It doesn't matter if you know this person or not. Just look him dead in the eye and just say, I was wrong. We're, doing, we're practicing here. Just say it. I was wrong. Didn't that feel good? Got it off your chest, okay? That's the first step when you stepped in it. You're going to say, I was wrong. Then the second thing that you're going to say, it's coming up next. Woo! Up in the ante a little bit here. What are you going to say next? I was wrong. I'm sorry, okay? Turn to that same neighbor. Tell him you're sorry. This is practice. We're practicing this. Some of you are having a real hard time with this. We're going to pray that the grace of the Spirit falls upon you and the tears of contrition and repentance begin to stream down your cheeks. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Next. Please forgive me. You're going to do it again. Come on, church. Say it to the person next to you. That's it. Please forgive me. Okay, so you have now those, those are three significant hurdles of pride that you had to clear to get to that point, okay? But you've done the work at this point. Now, the person has to reciprocate and here's how they're gonna reciprocate. I want you to turn to that person who said those things to you and I want you to say, say it real loud, church. Say it to that person who's sitting next to you. We just saved like 10 marriages this morning. <laughs> right? And thousands of dollars of therapy. But I'm not kidding, guys. But all of the people that I've sat with over the years, somewhere along the line, this broke down. Somewhere along the line, this went wrong. Somewhere along the line, somebody had too much pride and they couldn't admit that they did something wrong or they had so much wounded pride that they couldn't extend forgiveness and grace to the other person. And John says that so long as we do that, the life of God is locked out. Humility draws the presence of God into your home. Do you know that? Those of you that know me, have known me for any length of time, you know I've been studying the desert fathers and mothers, the ancient monastics for years now. And they differ on many things. But one of the things that the monastics are absolutely united on is the notion that 
the one thing, the one thing that hell cannot imitate and that hell cannot tolerate is humility. Do you know why? Because humility is definitional for who God is. St. Isaac the Syrian said that humility is the raiment, it's the clothing of the Godhead. And we know this because our God who dwells on high took on the form of a servant in Christ Jesus. Our God is humble. So that when we embody humility, it draws something of the presence of God into our homes. Do you want to cast the devil out of your house? Get humble. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And then I forgive you. And do you know what will happen? Pentecost will fall in your home. And I, I, and I could, if I marched the couples that have been married here for decades and decades up here, they would tell you the same thing. That there's something about getting humble. There's something about emptying yourself. There's something about saying, it was on me. That's so my bad. Please forgive me. All of the sweetness is restored into a relationship and the presence of God steals in. The reason, some of you, the reason that your homes are a mess is because you are a prideful twit. So just get over yourself. Do you want life or do you want death? It's your choice. Get humble. So our homes are to be places where the life of God is manifest as righteous love. Our homes are to be places of humility and repentance and forgiveness. And then the third thing is that our homes are to be places where the wider family of, of God is built up and finds expression. I, when I survey the New Testament, one of the things that astonishes me about it is that there's all of this family language all over the New Testament when you survey that language, one of the things that's very interesting is that a fraction of that language is used for what we might call the nuclear family. Husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and children and all of that stuff. It certainly has the nuclear family in view and it wants to address the nuclear family. But do you know that the vast majority of family language in the New Testament is used for somebody beyond the family? And do you know what that body is? Come on, church. Do you know it? It's the church. The church is the family of God. And the disciples of Jesus learned this from Jesus. Do you remember that time in the Gospels where Jesus looks around and they go, hey, your mother and brother are here to see you. And he goes, who are my brother and my sister and my mother? He goes, whoever does God's will. That's my brother and my sister and my mother. Somehow it's the presence of Jesus that creates new family for us. Think about Jesus, one of his dying words on the cross. So he looks down, John chapter 19, he looks down and he sees his mom standing there and he sees this young man who has become an old man, the beloved disciple standing there. And he says to his mom, hey mom, I know things, you, I know there's a chance you're going to be lonely and things are going to be hard. So mom, here's your boy. And then he looks over at John and he says, John, that's your mama now. And he takes those two people and he puts them together and he makes a family and the church in the first century and down through the ages has been known for this. 
that the great scourge of loneliness is healed inside the wider body of Christ as all of us leverage the gifts that we have to open up our lives to one another. Somehow God overcomes the loneliness among us. And one of the things that I think is just the biggest mistake of the modern church is that we have so idolized the nuclear family that we had, like it's totally eclipsed our understanding of the family of God. What we have said is that the nuclear family is a destination. God's dream for everybody is for them to get married and have kids and a bunch of grandkids and it's all kind of right here. And then those that somehow don't fit inside of that are left outside. I just think that's ridiculous. If God calls you to get married and have kids and raise a big family, do that. Do it with all blessing. But if God has not called you into that, you haven't failed. Nor are you locked out of relationships of intimacy. Because God has called us together to be the family of God. And one of the things that I love the most about this church is the way in which hospitality is extended. Single folks extending hospitality to married folks. Married folks who have kids and grandkids offering hospitality to those younger couples. And I'm watching the relationships form here. And I look out to you and I can say with John, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called the children of God. That is where the kingdom of God breaks in. Can you receive that this morning, church? Can you stand to your feet? And I'm going to have you do something this morning as we're here gathered at the table of the Lord in the presence of God. All of us are in families. All of us are connected to our families. And all of us here are the family of God. And I think part of what happens when we gather together is that the Spirit fills us and renews us in such a way that the life of God races out to our families and it heals our families just by virtue of the fact that we were here this morning. And so I'm going to ask you to take the hand of the person next to you. And this person doesn't know I'm going to do this this morning, but Barack O'Cal, are you in here this morning? Where is Barack? Barack, can you come up this morning? Can you give some love to Barack O'Cal? Man, this guy. Come on up, man. This guy's been part of our church forever. Since the very beginning, he's led the intercessory prayer team for New Life East. And Pastor Barack, would you pray the Lord's blessing over our families this morning? Can you do that? Church, grab the hand of the person next to you. And let's open up our hearts to God. Hallelujah. Father, in Jesus' name. Bless the hand of the person yes. I'm holding this morning, Lord, this afternoon. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ of Jesus. Nazareth. Holy Spirit, come down. Yes. Yes, Lord, just come down right yes. now. Come down into the life of the person I'm holding their hands yes. right now, dear Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Oh, come, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Father, just sanctify, sanctify. just wash, oh God. Yeah. Um, my Father, just forgive, oh Lord Almighty, revive and yes. restore. Yes. Uh, that which the enemy wanted to take away, oh God, we come this time. And Father, we call it yeah. forth, oh God, we call that life. Yes, we do. 
And now, Father, I squeeze love in these hands I hold. Yes. I squeeze peace in these hands I hold. Yes. Father, I call upon your power and your authority in these hands I hold. Oh, Lord God Almighty, permeate us now. Yes, yes just move and flow. Just move and flow. Just move and flow right now. Move and flow, oh God, in the life of my brother, yes, my sister. Yes, yes. Lord, my God, in the, brother, the hands of my wife, yes. my husband, oh Lord of glory. My brother and my sister, right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, let your power, let yes. your fire, let your spirit yes. move right now, oh God of glory. Yes. Touch us and touch us and touch us, I pray. Yes. I pray for a blessing from the kingdom of Grant God. It. I pray, Lord, my Father, for peace from the kingdom of God. Grant it to I our pray, own. Lord, my God, for restoration from God Bring Almighty. It, Bring it now into yes. our lives. Bring it into our home, into the person I'm holding their hands right now. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Spirit of God, yes, flow. Bring healing right now, yes. oh God. Deliverance, Father. Release forgiveness and freshness of our souls yes. again. This day, my Father, release that freshness. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We receive it. We yes, receive we do. it. We receive it. Yes. Do it, Lord. Yes. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And we remember before you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus at the table, take the bread and take the cup, bless it and break it and give it to us. We pray that at the table, sins would be forgiven, that all of our infractions against you and against one another would be healed, and that you'd restore us again this morning as the living body of Christ. Grant it, we pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward to serve communion. Communion will be on my right and my left down front here. As you come forward, you'll come up the center aisles here, take a cracker, dip it in the juice, and take it as you head back to your seat. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people.